This week on On The Run with Street Beat, we'll be talking to a friend of mine, Matt Curtis. I first met Matt in 1985 as the teacher at Barrel, and in more recent years he's moved all over Australia with different jobs. But this is part of a three-part interview with him about his experience of working in Raja Mani, which is 300, maybe 400 kilometres southwest of Catherine in the Northern Territory. It's quite an interesting story about working and living in an Aboriginal community and was there for four years. Enjoy. Hi, it's Martin here, and it's the 9th of October 2018, and I'm in the suburb of Eglinton in Bathurst with a very good friend I met probably 35 years ago when we were teaching in Barrel. Um, hi, Matt, how are you going? Good, thanks, Marty. <laughs> What's the context of the conversation? It's a rhetorical question is, um, this year the, the federal government has a joint select committee on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders constitutional recognition. And I've been particularly interested in it. I put in a submission. There were 330, 435 submissions. And I went to a public hearing at the, um, the Redfern Centre for Indigenous Excellence last week, Matt. And I was conscious of the fact that you've had a bit of a career in teaching that's had a lot of sympathy and empathy and professional and academic involvement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And I just thought we could have a chat. What got you interested? Sounds good. Okay. What got you interested in that space, Matt? Well, look, I suppose if I go back through teaching career very briefly, you know, about... 30-something-odd years of teaching. I've never really had two years the same. That's not two years in the same place teaching the same subjects. And although there are teachers that sort of teach maybe English or history for their whole lives and become very good at it, I've been a bit of jack of all trades and master of some, and I've had lots of change and taught at lots of different levels and lots of different places. So to answer the question... All I can say is I got the opportunity to do something different, which was to go and teach remotely in Australia. And it was quite frightening at the time because I'd never done anything like it. But being fascinated uh, to some extent with Indigenous culture and not really understanding anything about it, I thought it was... It sort of came together with that. It's my natural way of keeping on teaching and keeping fresh and keeping growing. So that was going to be that side of it. But I probably didn't have to go to Central Australia to do it. But that was the other part of an adventure. It was kind of like I've never been in that situation before or would see that or would experience in that. And I'm so glad that I did because it's so different from anything you ever experience. You just think it's like going to another place in Australia and it's going to be a bit different, like maybe moving from the city to do rural teaching. Hi, it's Martin here again. It's still the 8th of... No, the 9th. <laughs> the 9th of October 2018. And I'm sitting in Matt's mother's house in... Um, where are we? Ego. Ego, it's called. And uh, we're going to go on to part two of Matt's um, journey living and working in an Indigenous community in the 1990s. Over to you, Matt. Where were we? Tell me a bit about what it was like in the classroom and living in an Indigenous community. All right. So let's go to the classroom first. Uh, 
when you go to those areas, of course, you know, you think you're going to change the world and you hope you're going to change the world, of course, for the better by educating people. So you bring all your knowledge and all your experience to that. And if you're a good teacher, you know, you can teach students quite well and you can teach them English and maths because you teach them all the subjects and play a bit of sport with them because I was very sporty. I like that part too and all those different things. But the funny thing was the emotional arc, as they call it, in, you know, stories and movies and journeys was that I started out thinking I was going to teach them about English, but actually they were teaching me all the time. And when you say, well, what were they teaching you? Well, how about another way to live? How about another way to think? How about another way to be? And not all of which, of course, I've taken on because I don't come from being a white fella they call Kadia to being a black fella, which they call Yapa. So he didn't turn into a black fella but I started to learn things that I had never seen or understood before that you could then, or a person could then, any teacher, then incorporate in their lives. So what I found with the teaching staff and the approach was, over time I certainly softened towards that cause or that way of thinking or their way of being because my belief was, well, when in Rome, do what Romans do. Don't go to Rome and, you know, start preaching, you know, something from another country because it's just you're in their country so as time went on i tried to fit more and more into their culture and probably was less stringent about teaching mine although i did teach every day and we did our maths and we did our english and you would help people as much as you could like i had one senior boy come to my class i've actually had three and who could not read or write one word so by the time that boy ends up writing his full name, you know, you could do cartwheels down the main street. The joy and the rewards are unbelievable. And they're not gonna to go to university like maybe would happen in mainstream society, but he could write his own name. So sometimes the smallest things are the greatest rewards. But if you go to a place like that, a little bit like a missionary and think that you're bringing your culture to them, the biggest advantage is they're bringing their culture to you. So that's the classroom, but I will say two points on that. When you get people that go to those areas, you, you can kind of split them up into two groups. You really have the very strong missionary type ethic where you know your way or your culture's way is the right way and they need to learn that to be successful in the world. So you become more disciplined and more strong about your culture and sometimes even, you know, show more of a backlash and um, I can't think of the right word, but negative, neg negative feelings or thoughts towards another culture or the other group of people is you're on a whole other planet, you know, not sit back and enjoy it, but at least get into it and enjoy it and see what it brings you because it can open your mind and expand you a hundredfold greater than anything you can in mainstream society. Just to unpack the classroom a bit more, was the classroom, school well-resourced? Um, what did it actually look like? 
how many kids were in the class with you? And you said you had a senior boy. Like, what were the year groupings? Well, they just sort of went up in groups of it. It's like a community school, so it sort of goes years two, three together, and you maybe four, five together, and six, seven. I had the senior boys, and being a male teacher, I'm with the boys and the girls be with the girls because that's how society is. But on the first day there, and this is how their society works, I had three kids in my class on the first day. But by the second day, I had 24 because the word gets around really quickly whether you're an okay person. That doesn't mean I'm okay, but they think you're okay. And then they come to school or they know you're not okay. And then you go from maybe three kids down to two kids. So I had three kids on the first day and I had 24 on the second day. And after the first two weeks, we had to move classrooms because we couldn't fit into our classroom. So we swapped with another class who was quite small, which was a much bigger room and I stripped the whole thing back and painted it out and tidied it up and put photos on the wall. And that's where I stayed for about the next five years. It was pretty, it was pretty good, but it was only because I, I think I had an equitable approach rather than a, I'm not very dictatorial or demonstrative anyway, but probably because I'm reasonably easy to get along with and appreciate their culture as much as mine. The classroom was indeed full. I went from three kids to 24 overnight, which is pretty good for a community school because most kids often don't go to school because they're disengaged. And there's about a million reasons, but so that's... Um, so so did, did the numbers stay that way for you? And if they didn't... What did you do proactively to keep them up? Well, they actually got bigger at most times. It just kept growing. It was really good for quite a few years. But I had this idea in my head. And when kids went away to Camilda in Darwin because they could be subsidised there, they used to get three square meals a day because they were boarders and they used to sleep at night and not run around or muck up, which they had a lot of freedom in their community. And being kids, you know, they'll do those things or go fishing or go hunting or any other thing you can do. Like school in a community is about number 10 or 11 on the list of things you can do on any given day. So to get anyone to school in a community is just a minor miracle in itself and you've got to see it like that. So I took a plan to ship all the senior kids off to Camilda so they got an even better education and better food and better health. So after, I think in about the third year, I got most of them out of the community to go to Camilda. I started with a couple of kids and got a few more and a few more. Then I got senior girls there as well because the boys went and the girls followed. And after about three years, I, I was back down to three kids again because <laughs> most of them were at Camilda. But the funny thing was for all the right reasons. And then there was about a change a year after that. And then some of them came back and then it just sort of stabilised somewhere in between probably around about 12 or 15. So it went up and down for different reasons and it goes up and down in communities all the time. If there's a death, there's sorry business, no one might come to school for two weeks or two months. And then other times you'll get visitors coming into town for a footy carnival or other things and suddenly you've got, you know, five or six extra kids. Um, so when the, when you have so, so, sorrow business, is that the... Sorry. Sorry, when you have sorry. What about... Um, was the community and you you alluded to but didn't use the word the kinship you had the boy you had the boys classes and the girls classes were there a, and and we can't talk about 
women's business per se, and definitely not experienced it, I haven't, was, was there initi- were there initiation ceremonies, and if there were, did um, young boys miss school and things like oh, that? Oh, yes, there's, 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 you know, men's business and women's business, and there's, you know, rites of passage at different ages for boys and for girls, and when they go on those journeys, they could be out for a few days or a few weeks at a time, or sometimes even months, a bit like sorry business, but when there's sorry business and there's a death in the community, the whole community goes out until that's over. So there's just nobody at school and no one in the community. And as for business, it goes, my son came and lived with me after a couple of years and he stayed for a while. And he actually went through business there together with another boy. And I think he was the only white boy to ever go through traditional business that I know of. There may have been others, but I don't think there ever have been in that community. And the reason I think he went through that, well, firstly, he came there and he fitted in with the locals too. He spoke the language and heaps better than me. I just had a few words, but he had, he could speak in sentences and understand them. But I think it was out of respect because I had a good relationship with the community already. Then my son came along and fitted in even more than I did. And then when it came time for business, they put him through business and he actually joined the Aboriginal nation by their own law in their own way that they've been doing for thousands of years. And that was that's intensely private. Yes, I don't even know all the things that he went through. I was privy to some things which I can't talk about, but it's not much anyway. It's just think of a normal, I don't know, ceremony that anyone would go through and there's different aspects of it. So I certainly wasn't aware of all the things that happened but I was part of it and supported it and saw those things until he finished that business, which took about probably, I don't know, maybe four to six weeks overall. And then until he came back out of that business and out of the bush and living with the elders and they're passing on their information and secrets to him, some of them. And then he came back into society, but he didn't tell me what they were. And we didn't speak about that because you're not supposed to. So he didn't betray that gift to him which is how it works. It's not a thing to go, oh, you know, look what happened to me. I did this, this and this. It doesn't work like that. And was Leon changed after that? Yeah, he was. He was, he was quite different. He was more like a young man. He was only a young kid anyway. He was only about, I think about 21, 22 at the time. But he just became, I would have said my term for him then, he was a young man. And that was probably the ceremony, even though I don't fully understand it, I understand it in part, but white fellas never fully understand anything. Indigenous people let you know some things, but they don't let you know everything, which is good, because it's their culture and you're not supposed to know everything. But my take on it was he'd become a young man in his own right, which was a really, it was a really beautiful gift. So you can see why schooling's 10th on the list. It's a very busy, active community. What sort of non-schooling community engagement did you get involved in? You mentioned sport before. Well, there was music. I played the drums, so I played with the local larger money band a couple of times. They let me have a bash on the drums, and I liked to play the didgeridoo, and had a friend that came up and played the didge, so we used to do a little bit of that for fun. But it was mostly sport, and because I didn't play soccer there, they only played AFL, I joined the larger Manu Swans first and played with them. They, they let me play. So I played with them for a couple of years. And I wasn't too bad. It wasn't great, but not too bad. 
And then I later on, I joined with one of the young boys I used to teach. But, you know, when I say young boys, he was about 20 then by the time he sort of finished school. So he wasn't, um, you know, he was a man in his own right. And he wanted to form a new team called the Waniaka Bombers, which is still going to this day. So he and I formed that team and they won their first championship only last year, which was some 16 or so years later. But that team's still going today and we used to play together, you know, about 20 years apart. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And what I didn't realise at the time was, each time I played against them, the, you know, the teams can be really rough out there and they're hard and they're tough. Like, they can smash you, they can hurt you really bad, but no one ever hurt me on the footy field, not really at all. I got a couple of tackles, but nothing really bad. But when I went into a competition, I think in my last year, <laughs> I got tackled by a couple of blokes from Cal Karinji and they just near broke me in half. They just, because they didn't know me, they didn't respect me. And of course they didn't like me, probably because I was white, you know, so that doesn't really help. So I got smashed and Jesus, it really, really hurt. But what it showed me was, all the years I've been playing football there, no one really went out to hurt me, which was, you know, the community coming to meet me and I didn't even know it was happening. Wow. And you probably spotted them 20 years too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I played my last game there at about... I went back at 58, I think, and I played I played a final game. I only got one hand pass in and I was probably lucky because had I held on to that ball a few years ago, I'd have probably been smashed and that really would have been a trip to hospital. <laughs> but they, they let me run on the field at 58 years old and have a farewell, which is... Again, you know, it's pretty graceful. It's, there's, there's a lot of grace. They don't say that and they don't think of it that way, but I understand it that way because you, when you get a couple of steps back from things, you can see things in a clearer light. Well, I think we'll wrap up that segment of the, the chat with one question. You were there for five years. Yes. Um, why did you leave? Oh, well, I didn't really want to. It was probably the saddest day of my life. I, I hated leaving, but I had a bit of a fallout with the principal at the time. And it's just the nature of those places. They're very small. You know, you're landlocked. You're only mixing with the same 10, 15, 20 people in your school community. And when you're getting on, it's terrific. There's not a nicer place on earth. Everyone's friendly. Everyone helps everyone. You have barbecues and go fishing or swimming or camping or whatever it is that you do or just watching the footy together or playing sport. It's lovely. But if you have a falling out, there's such small communities, it's really hard to then survive there. So I had a falling out with the principal just over a few minor things. It probably wasn't anything too much. I can't even remember what it was really, but... He went off the rails for a little while. He was having some difficulties in his life and, you know, there's always difficulties in the school so it takes nothing to really trigger you to have an argument or a disagreement with anyone about anything because every day is tough. But I'll, I'll sort of finish that by saying that's not an excuse but everyone's doing it tough out there all the time. But to put a balanced perspective on it, I've always thought of going there as like, it's the best and worst of everything that can happen all at the same time. So you can have a day where it's just the most joyous occasion and the most amazing things happen. 
and in the next thing there can be a sorry where someone's died unexpectedly and that can be someone from one to about 30 years old so it's not old people and then there's no one at school so it can go from bliss to grief in the blink of an eye so you've got to be extremely resilient and I suppose if I was giving any advice to anyone you need some good support mechanisms and you have to be very careful when you're under pressure, which you always are in those places, uh, I suppose, not to be too reactive. So you would have been one of the longest serving staff members? Oh, yeah, I was at the time, probably apart from the principal at the time. He, he was there about a year or two before me, and then I left, and I think he left about a year or, or so later, and he went somewhere else. But... The general turnover is about two years in those places because they're so hard, they're so far away, and they're you know the weather's tough on you, uh, the travel's tough on you, the isolation can be tough on you, and if you're there by yourself, you've really got no support mechanism. So most people only last a couple of years, even at best. And you doubled that and a bit more. Well, I'll finish with this part of the story. On the very first week I got there, and you know. The frogs were coming up through the toilet and everything moved and the dogs in the community were, you know, they'd attack you because you'd smell, I suppose, like a white fella, like a cardi, and they'd go after you. So nowhere was really safe, especially at night. And there was lots of noise and everything that was just an attack on your senses. I rang my partner up at the time because she was back in Sydney and she said she was coming up, you know, like a week or two later. And I just said to her, this was on the Friday and I'd only been there five days. I said, don't come. It's just too hard. You know, just stay where you are. And, I'll, and I said, I'll make a decision over the weekend because it was Friday night. And I was making a phone call from a phone box on the corner, which was about 50 metres from my place. The phone booth had been pushed over and was at 45 degrees, no word of a lie. I don't know how it's even still standing up, but probably the steel was bent. So I was at 45 degrees. There were, uh, the, the phone box was, it was probably about 40 degrees outside. There were 30 dogs surrounding me, barking their heads off, waiting to rip me to shreds. I was almost in tears because it was just such a hard week to get through and everything I had never known or ever seen, but. I made the end of the week and I told her not to come and I said, I think I said, I'll make a decision, you know, over the weekend because, you know, I might be coming home on Monday. You know, never mind about you you coming all the way up here. I mightn't even last till next week. And then I made another 412 weeks straight after that. Wow. Well, I think I'm going to end that right there and then. And then you happy to have a part three on this map? Yeah, yeah, it's going well. All right, then. That, sounds, that sounds good to me. We keep getting longer and longer. That's 20 <laughs> minutes now. Hi, it's Martin here again. I'm up to part three of a discussion with Matt about his days of teaching in La Germania. We've been going for so long now, it's the 10th of October. <laughs> and there's no editing here. <laughs> All right, Matt. Um, We've talked about working in the schools. No, actually, no, go back one step further. We've talked about you coming here, working in the school and living in the community. What I want to touch on now is a few rapid-fire questions. Um, 
who was your mentor while you were there? Or mentors? Well, I didn't really have one, except to say the closest thing I would have had to a mentor was the student that I formed a very good bond with who was just, you know, a young lad that I started teaching in my class and taught over the next few years. And in the end, he had to leave school because he was so old, like he was 20 at the time, but I thought he was still only about 16. And he's the young lad that I formed the football team with. And he wasn't mentoring me as in I was, you know, double his age, but we just seemed to have an affinity well, we both like football and we both seemed to get along and he seemed to be a very quiet and gentle student and a lovely student and he was a great artist. And um, we were both skin brothers, so when I got my skin name in the very beginning, that was on about the first or second day that I was teaching, it was Jumper Jimba, which is, uh, it means uh, water dreaming and or uh, Waniara, the great, you know, the great creator. He was a jumper jimba, and the funny thing is, once you get your skin name, you usually find the people that you're related to, for not because you're related to them, very unlike white society, because you can be related to someone and you know, hate their guts and not get along with them. But there, if you're related to them, like it's your brother or your sister or your mother or your father or you know, you or their mother or their father or their aunt or their brother, you get along famously, and it just worked out perfect. So. In a way, I suppose, he was my mentor because we got along so well and we spent so much time together, which was mostly around sport and at school because he was at school every day and he was a budding young artist. And I remember after he left school, he was bored and I felt really sorry for him because there's nothing to do in the community pretty much. So I went out and I bought all this art stuff. I bought about 200 bucks worth of art material so that he could start painting and drawing because he had a unique talent and he was a nice young lad and I just wanted to see him go somewhere not just sit around all day because they wouldn't let him come to school anymore because he was about 20 years old I didn't know that at the time I thought he was still about you know 16 I didn't know his age so I bought him all this art stuff to start making his own art because he just naturally draw at school and draw at home and draw anywhere he could and come out with these really beautiful, quite modern pictures. And his, his mother, who was actually my mother by Aboriginal law, she was a painter and she's still alive today and does the most beautiful paintings that you've ever seen. And that was the very first painting that I bought without knowing who she was. So there's another bit of, you know, synchronicity going on. But the sad thing was it only lasted two weeks and he couldn't maintain it because he couldn't see that it would, could lead somewhere and he could produce a lot of art and maybe, you know, get a bit of a show going or start selling things and actually then make really good money and make a good living out of his natural born talent. He was a beautiful drawer and a beautiful person and I just wanted to see it go somewhere, but it never did. So you reached out and it went it had some impact, but it didn't go down the path you were thinking because you were probably thinking from a non-Indigenous perspective? Probably, and I don't know how I could have handled it any better, but, um, yeah, there's probably better ways to have done it. But, like, they've got a local arts centre there and probably the only way it could work is 
if he was working in in or out of that art centre. I can't remember whether it was running at that time, but I think it was, although they were mostly female artists. But if he'd had gone down there daily and started producing paintings and maybe sold a few and recognised his own mm. talents and could see that it could lead somewhere, I could see that it could lead somewhere because I could see the quality of his drawings. Mm. And I was just trying to give him support so he would do that for himself and make good money and have, and have a living because there was nothing to do. There were no jobs. So it's only just clicked. Few jobs. It's only just clicked. I'm a bit slow to the party. You were there soon after the Marpo decision. Well... And, 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 and land titles and things like that. Was there a community side involved in that or you were so remote it wasn't even an issue? No, that didn't really come up. But they used to have a reenactment every year up the road at Wave Hill which is near Wave Hill Station or Kalkarinji. And they used to, uh, that's where Vincent Lignari, um, you know, got that handful of yeah, sand that, yeah. poured, poured in his hand by Gough Whitlam. Oh, wow. And they used to reenact that every year at Waddy Creek. So we used to go up to some, you know, some ceremonies that they used to have like that. And that one was definitely about land rights. And they used to reenact that every year at Waddy Creek, which is the creek that runs through Cal Karinji, but it's not right next to Wave Hill, but it's not far from that property. It might be 20 k's or something like that, sort of on the edge of it. That's the next nearest Indigenous community. And that was 100 k's away? You said, that was 100 first. k's away. And the, I think Wave Hill Station was, you know, about 130. It's just a little bit further on. So you had your mentor... Um, who was my student. Who was your student. <laughs> sort of leading me down the right path because, you know, because I knew him, I met other people and fitted into the community and played footy and he'd come round to our place every night and my wife would cook tea and he'd eat tea with us most times and then he'd just sit there and draw and talk about footy and, and then go home. Very different experience. You haven't mentioned his name. Well, he's got an original name. Uh, he had an original name when he was born, which was David, but that had to be changed because when he was young, someone with another name the same or the same sound died, so he had to change it to his next name, which was actually Barnabas that got shortened to Barna. And the only reason I can say that is because I'm a white fella, but if you're an Indigenous person, you can't even say either of those names because... When someone passes away, to be respectful, and then I will just call him by this from now on to explain it, it's Kumanjay, which means you've passed away and you don't say their name to call them back to the earthly plane. In other words, it's sort of to free their spirit, to let them not be disturbed and they go back to the dream time or the cosmos or wherever it is you go after you pass away. So... He became Kumanjay in the end and another example of that is while I was in the community there was another young person, Matthew, um, and he, well there were, a few, there were a couple of Matthews but a Matthew passed away somewhere so towards the end of my time in large Amoni was a teacher, people couldn't call me Matthew because someone had died with that name, passed away, they don't say died, they say passed away. So my name was Kumanjay or Jumper Jimba because I had a skin name. 
Right. So they don't even call me Matthew to this day because it takes sometimes 20 years for that name to be able to come back and be used in the community and not affect the spirit of that person who's passed over. So it's Kuma. Kuman Jay. Kuman Jay. And I think it's just a name that doesn't sound like any other. So it's like a universal name that you can say. And the simple way to explain it is, say someone passes away is called Barry. Well, you can't have the name Barry or Larry or Gary because they all sound the same. So anything that even sounds the same has to be changed. So Kuman Jay was the... It's like a universal name. So in this context, that was the, the young adult you brought to Sydney to watch the AFL play. Yes, he was mad about AFL, which he was in the it community. He stayed at our place. Yeah, and he stayed at your place, which was pretty amazing. There's another connection. Because he came to Bathurst for a while, and I think we came to Sydney to watch the game, stayed at your place, and the funny thing was he went down there, he was a mad North Melbourne supporter, and we went down to watch the game, and as they came on and did the warm-up, I remember one of the Motlop brothers, and there's a lot of them, so I might have his name wrong, but say it was Daniel Motlop, you know, he went onto the field and he was coming off the field and it was Jay's hero. And he was also an Indigenous player, so it was like a double whammy. It's his super, superhero player and he's an Indigenous, um, you know, athlete. So I called him over and I'm no one to call him over. I just went, hey, Daniel... You know, come over here, mate, I've got someone to meet you. And I introduced him to Kuman Jay with his, you know, name at the time. And he was so shy because this was his nature. He was a very gentle uh, young man. He was so shy and embarrassed, he, he could not speak to him. He couldn't even look at him. And he actually turned around and faced the other way because he was so, not embarrassed, but so overwhelmed by the fact. It's like meeting Muhammad Ali or someone. It was just that big or the Prime Minister, it was massive. So I spoke to Daniel Motlop, who was, you know, the kindest, nicest guy you could ever meet. He was coming off the field after his warm-up, ready to play a game against the Swans, and he stayed there and talked to us for about three or four minutes, which is a lot, and when you've only got maybe 10 minutes to get out and warm up and go back on the field. And I did all the talking because Kumanjay was so shy and wouldn't speak to him because he loved him and respected him as his hero. But the funny thing was, Daniel invited us into the change rooms and we went inside the change rooms, down the locker rooms, and we saw them warm up inside before they came out to the game. And in a funny way, maybe that was one of my gifts back to him. You know, I took him there and I bought the tickets and I got us there and I made all that happen. But it was probably, you know, more good luck than good management. We just happened to be in the right place. Daniel Motlop happened to be coming by. He was a nice guy. He, aged, he came over and spoke to us and then took us in the change rooms before the game. So that would have wow. been for him, that would have been just an astronomical thing from somewhere in the middle of Australia to go and actually see and meet your heroes live and go in their change room. It would be like me going to Liverpool and being invited in, you know, uh, before kickoff. It would be mm. unbelievable. And meeting your hero of all time, like for me to be Steve Gerrard, you know. Mm. So at the time it didn't seem that big, but upon reflection, you know, for him that was probably, well, hopefully one of the you know best experiences of his life. So you, I don't know where to go from here. 
And there's, there's, <laughs> there's more I want to ask you, but I won't, out of respect to Kuman Kuman Jay. Kuman Jay. But I do know the backstory there, and that's given me a lot of insight into um, the thinking of stuff from a non-Indigenous perspective about the respect that's owed. I've heard that thing about you don't mention the name of yes. people that have passed, but I've never really understood the context of it and things like that. So what was the probably the highlight of your time there? And, and probably firstly, what was one of the hardest things you had to deal with? Well, the hardest, the hardest thing is really easy. It's death and it happens all the time. And it happens almost every month, which might, I don't know if that sounds like a lot, it should be, because that'd be roughly a dozen times a year. How many are in the community? Oh, only about seven or 800 people. So okay. when, when you get 10 or 12 people dying every year, you know, that's that's a truckload of people that, that are passing away. Yeah, anyone from one to eighty yeah. sort of thing. So it's everybody. And it comes out of left field all the time and it's for all a whole range of reasons. Any reason you can think of for dying or getting killed, it'll be there in that year. And one minute someone's there and the next day they're not and it's as really stark as that and it it re it, it you know, it's very raw. It takes you back to your senses. Uh, and your very primal state of being because there's no protection. It's like, you know, that kid was in my class yesterday, they're dead today. And that, that sounds a bit melodramatic, but it's like that. And it mightn't be the kid in your class, but it might be the kid in the next person's class or someone's brother or someone's father or someone's mother or someone's sister. And it happens with that much regularity. The first couple of times it happens, you go, oh, wow, you know, this is really big because in our society, you might hear of a funeral, you know, every now and then, and especially when you get older, there's, there's probably a few more funerals, but, you know, when you're young, it's just not like people are dying left, right and centre. But actually, in those communities, they do. So the hardest thing is death, because it strips you back to your raw essentials. It strips you back to the bone, and it just reminds you. I can't actually find the words, it just reminds you how real everything is. Everything else is superfluous. What you're eating, what clothes you're wearing, because you know, you're alive that day and someone else isn't. And the best thing, you said the best thing? Yeah. I think the best thing is, I learned to share with people. I learned to be more generous. And because indigenous people share everything, they share their food, their money, their houses, their dogs, you know, their family, their cars. It's a collective, it works different than we do. We have things and things are ours and things are mine. So it taught me about sharing and I find sharing, I don't find sharing that difficult and I never did, but it showed me a whole new light on how, how far you can go with that. And you can share a lot more than what you think you can. So that was probably the highlight you actually really learn to share. And maybe it's not just your money or your car or, you know, physical things. Maybe it's really sharing yourself. Well, Matt, I couldn't think of anything better to finish this with. <laughs> no rapid fire questions. <laughs> nah, too, good. too good at the moment. We'll All just right. ease that up. Um, I don't know what we're going to do with this, neither do you, but at least we've done it. Yeah. No, it was really good. 
Thanks, Matt. Thoroughly enjoyed it.